Welcome to Sentient Planet. Many of the things that are really important, like stabilizing the climate, we will not see the effect of the right policies in probably in any of our lifetimes, but we will have done the right thing for all of the people that are not born, who have nothing to say about it right now, and all of the other creatures that live on this only known living planet. Hi, it's Susan, your host. I'm excited to bring you today's interview with the acclaimed ecologist and writer, Dr. Carl Safina. Carl is the first endowed professor for nature and humanity at Stony Brook University and founder of the not-for-profit Safina Center. He's a passionate advocate for the living world and a gifted communicator, penning numerous award-winning books and essays about our human relationship with the rest of this sentient planet. Today, Carl shares some of the remarkable encounters he's had with all sorts of species, including elephants, sperm whales, and chimpanzees, as well as the beloved animals that began it all for him, seabirds. Drawing from a lifetime of direct experience, Carl warns us of the consequences of the mistakes we're making, teaches us about the beauty that still persists in nature, and calls us to moral action. Well, welcome to Sentient Planet, Dr. Carl Safina, and thank you for joining us today. Well, it's really a pleasure. I'm here on Long Island, New York, where we are having a thunderstorm at the moment, so you might hear some rumbles. Hey, those are good sounds to capture. I hope that we do. Carl, what an incredible life path you've been on, seabird and raptor ecology as a young man. Then you were involved in fisheries policy and efforts to ban drift nets, for the past 20 years or so, it seems, you've been devoting much of your time to writing. I think it's nine books now that you've penned? Well, depending on how you count, it's 10. 10, so. okay. Quite prolific as well then. Well, I'd love to uh, hear you touch on all of these phases if we have time. Perhaps we can start at the beginning. What drew you to the study of seabirds? Where did you study them and what did you learn? I started studying seabirds on Long Island. I, I always loved terns because, first of all, they're really beautiful. And secondly, they often led me to fish when I was fishing. So they were like my partners out there and I always had an eye on them. I didn't know where they nested until I found out that a professor that I had in my final year at college was studying nesting terns. I very eagerly volunteered to work with him. That turned into 13 years of studying terns. And I, I studied them for my master's degree, as well as my PhD, where they nested and on the ocean where they foraged. Did a lot of, a lot of different things that I was looking at during those years, different aspects of their lives and their fishing skills and feeding ecology and their relationships with some of the predatory fish as well that they rely on for chasing small fish to the surface. So that's how I started to study and where it was mostly right around Long Island, New York, where I still live. Fantastic. 
What did you learn from them? What um, struck you in your observations of these animals? Well, one of the things that struck me was that the, the very basics of their lives were rather similar to ours. They try very hard to stay alive. They need to find enough food and they try very hard to keep their children alive. And they're very, they're very good parents. And there, you know, there's a lot of tragedy in seabird colonies as well. There's some years where there's not very much food around. A lot of young ones starve. So there's, you know, it's very dramatic. There's a lot of beauty. There's also a lot of tragedy. I guess those were a couple of the main impressions that I had. Hmm. But since then, I went on to study some other seabirds, including the biggest of them all, the albatrosses. I wrote a whole book about albatrosses focused on one particular albatross that was nesting on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Do you want to talk a little bit about his story or her story? It was a her. I named her Amelia. They travel increasing distances after their chick hatches. And those distances and the time it takes between returning with food get to be truly epic. They go hundreds of miles away from their nest and may fly for two or three weeks and cover six or 8,000 miles just to bring one gigantic feeding back to a chick that has been waiting for uh, a couple of weeks. You know, both parents are doing similar things. As the chick gets older, the farther and the longer those trips are. And they go all the way from the tropical North Pacific, west of Hawaii, to the, the Bering Sea, or the coast of California. And this is all under, you know, their own power. They're not in a sailboat. Well, unless you consider an albatross's body a sailing craft, which actually it is because they often can glide for hundreds of miles without flapping at all. They're really, really extreme birds, really epic and amazing. You know, many of us have seen those unpleasant photos that document some of the first meals that albatross are receiving from their parents when they return back from those long flights of pieces of plastic that's in our environment. I wonder if you can speak to that and perhaps give us a sense overall of how that species is doing these days. Well, I would say that, you know, there's one albatross, one Laysan albatross nesting at Midway Atoll in the middle of the Pacific, who is in her late 60s and is still, still nesting. She's the oldest known wild bird. And she was born in an ocean that had essentially no plastic in it. Now, all of those birds and all of their chicks have plastic in them. It does not always kill them, but it is never good for them. And sometimes they do die. I've seen many dead albatrosses that, um, you know, as their bodies decay, you can see that their gut was packed with plastic. I saw an albatross, and I wrote about this in my book, Eye of the Albatross. I saw an albatross feeding a chick, and she was in distress while feeding. Something was wrong. And then she was trying very hard to get something else out. And what I saw emerge was the tip of a toothbrush that she had swallowed, but she couldn't get it out because she was bent over and the toothbrush is straight. I went over to her. They're not at all afraid of people. I went over to her and I put my arms around her and I tried to 
pushed the toothbrush up, trying to hold her neck straight, but I couldn't really manipulate it very well uh, because she had re-swallowed it. So that was just a gut-wrenching thing. And she just waddled away. Um, and who knows what happened after that. Yeah, that's such a vivid description in your face experience of some of the negative impacts we humans are having on the earth that we're becoming more and more aware of. There's a chapter in your latest book, Becoming Wild, um, that describes your observations of another species, the sperm whale. Your writing is just exquisite. Among the things I learned reading it, which struck me as fascinating, is their female-dominated culture and, and family cohesion, their love mm -hmm. of physical touch, and the fact that a sperm whale has been detected diving to a depth of 4,000 feet. Okay, tell us more. What makes sperm whales different to other whales? Well, sperm whales are unusual among all the really big whales because they have teeth, and most of the really big whales have baleen, those straining plates that they use to, you know, they engulf a gigantic swimming pool's worth of water, and then they retract their throat and squeeze the water out while those brushy plates that they have instead of teeth retain the fish or the krill that they have engulfed. But sperm whales have teeth and they hunt and they hunt mainly squid and some other things. None of the other big whales have teeth and none of the other really big whales have the kind of social organization that sperm whales have. In fact, no, no other cetacean has exactly that kind of social organization. But their, their social structure is a lot like elephants. The females stay in their birth family for their entire lives. And the males, when they get to be adolescents, they leave and they have, they have a different kind of a life pattern. One of the reasons that they have that organization is that their food is so deep, as you mentioned, they, they often dive thousands of feet to hunt squid that stay very, very deep. And they, they hunt them in total darkness using sonar. The babies cannot do deep dives, so they have to stay helplessly at the surface. But there are always some family member or family members who are hanging around close while the mother is diving, and they take turns taking care of the young ones that way. So it's a babysitting culture. I love that, a babysitting culture. And of course, the threat, I would imagine, would be probably killer whales, orca. I'm just trying to think what would tackle a sperm whale. Well, that is the main thing that they have to fear. There are a couple of other things that might harass or hurt them. Sometimes pilot whales or what's called false killer whales, which look a lot more like pilot whales than they do like orcas. They may harass them or take a bite out of them. The ones that would really do very devastating lethal damage would be the orcas. So, um, and you know, I don't know, possibly white sharks. I'm not sure about that. They don't have very many. <laughs> they pretty much outgrown most of the predators in the ocean, For but sure. they still do have some. I'm also intrigued by the fact that in their evolutionary past, sperm whales, and I think other whales as well, were once land mammals. How long ago was that? And what kind of land mammal were they? I'm just, get, I'm sort of re-guessing uh -huh. right now. I think it would be uh, something along the lines of 40 million years ago or something like that. And they evolved 
back into the water from mammals that, and this did not happen just once, it happened a number of times, hmm. from mammals that were kind of aquatic coastal grazing animals. Now, you know, when you say that they were four-footed animals and then they evolved into whales, that sounds impossible to imagine. But if you think about hippopotamuses, for instance, they're four-legged mammals. They spend most of their time in the water. They come out of the water to forage. If they were foraging in the water, they might look more like otters or seals and sea lions. Then you start to you get a better idea of all the various intermediate stages that a shift back from a land mammal with four legs to a fully aquatic mammal who never comes out of the water. You know, seals and sea lions, they come out of the water, they have their young out of the water, and the cetaceans, the dolphins and the whales, and the sirenians, which are the manatees and dugongs, they give birth in the water. So they're really fully aquatic, and they've lost their rear legs. In their front flippers, which just look like fins, the exact same bones are in those flippers as we have in our hands. Those flippers are more like mittens. We would think that tens of millions of years is a very long time, but in the history of life on Earth, which has been around for several billion years, it's not long at all. They, they're mammals like us. They have basically the same skeleton, the same organs, the same nervous system. And many of the same kinds of behaviors, like I mentioned in the book, they like to greet each other and touch. And although they don't look like typical mammals that we think of, they act that way. They, they show their close relation. You do a terrific job of translating science, I think, into inviting understandable common language. Thank you for that. It's just so enjoyable to read your work. Thank you. A through line, I think, is that we aren't that different from many of the other sentient beings we share the planet with. How can we overcome our misguided notions of human exceptionalism and our tendency to enforce dominion over all other life forms? Well... You know, none of us are born that way. We all learn those things as values. We learn that we are the only thing on this planet that matters. We learn that it's okay for us to treat other animals and where they live the way that we treat them. And um, what would it take? It would take learning things differently with a different set of values and a different set of ethics. And it could happen immediately in one generation if that's what people decided to do. I've been looking a lot at where this all comes from. And one of the most striking things is that if you think of the history of human thought as having three 
really big main areas, indigenous views, you know, the tribal hunter gatherer people who were humanity for well over 100,000 years and still exist tied to their land based practices. Those are indigenous people. Eastern Asian religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and wisdom traditions like Confucianism and Western values and traditions that grew up mainly in Europe and had a lot to do with Christianity. What you see is that the lack of reverence for the world itself and for other animals is a Western thing that is really different than what the rest of the world thought about the life that exists on this planet. Almost all of them were trying very hard to understand it, to understand where things came from. They had a gut feeling of unity about life, which now we understand it, life is organically related through evolution, but they had a gut feeling and yet they saw all this diversity. They were trying to understand it in a, in a pre-scientific way. They saw things in nature that seemed complementary and different, but balanced out, like, you know, hot and cold, life and death, hard and soft. The Chinese called that principle yin and yang. It was a, a major thing. And a person was called upon to live in a way that would help keep all the balances in order. In the West, it was completely different. The idea mostly originating with Plato that there was a perfect existence somewhere out there away from this world, and that the world was a polluted and decaying place, a place that you shouldn't really respect. That idea got into the monotheistic Abrahamic religions of Hebrewism, Christianity, and Islam. The result in a world that has globalized Western values is the current catastrophe that we have because our total disrespect for the world has resulted in an extinction crisis, a climate crisis, and a toxification crisis. All, all of the other thought traditions in the world had a deep reverence for the, the mystery of life, and we don't. Mm. And getting back to that appreciation and perhaps awestruckness of how incredible life is, is the path for us to embark on. Yeah, that's the path, all right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, related, another chapter I really enjoyed in Becoming Wild is uh, Being Better Apes, I think it was called. In it, you describe your observation of an interaction among a family of chimps. We share 90% of the same DNA as chimps, which you educate us about. Anyway, a male chimp has the audacity to puff up just a little, and when the dominant chimp learns of this, all hell breaks loose. If I may read your reaction after watching the mayhem, you wrote, to be honest, it's all getting on my nerves. The male's demands for acknowledgement of rank, the intimidated screaming and submissive grunting, the young and the females caught in cross-firing ambitions and in the obsessive insecurities of high-status males. It's wearing thin on me. 
It doesn't just waste everyone's time, it's oppressive. So I must admit, I laughed a little bit when I read this and, and then I became quite sad because it's hard to miss the similarity to the toxic masculinity that dominates our human culture today. And of course, that was the point you were trying to convey. And we just touched upon this, but maybe you'd like to elaborate. What are we to do about it? You know, in a, in a sense, everything you said is exactly right. But, you know, I wasn't using the chimpanzees as um, uh, sort of caricatures of humans. I, I was showing, because we see better when we're not looking at ourselves, I was showing that toxic masculinity doesn't just exist in humans, but it exists in one of our two closest relatives, the other being bonobos or bonobos, which have a totally different social system. With chimps, a male is always the most dominant member of a chimpanzee community, and they always win their dominance in a fight. Someone has to lose for someone to be the winner. In our version of the human world, this is often the way that we do it, but bonobos do it very differently. And they are as related to us as chimpanzees, but luck broke for them in a different way. The most dominant individuals in their group are females. Females just age into their dominance. They're just respected elders. They don't fight for it. In fact, they suppress fighting and violence. They're famously peaceful. No bonobo has ever been known to kill another one, whereas in chimpanzees, murder is an ongoing factor in their lives. They have lethal clashes with other communities and in fights for dominance. A male may kill a male he has known for 20 years. Killing someone you know is something that is really rare, and humans do it and chimpanzees do it. Bonobos do not do it. The other thing about dominance is that it's not even universal in human cultures for somebody to win at the cost of somebody else and to become high status by making someone lose. If you think of tribal elders, for instance, chiefs, they're just respected for the fact that they've seen a lot happen and they have good judgment because they've seen a lot happen. They know how things can go and they can make decisions that people respect. They don't fight for it or push somebody out. I don't know how deep and how universal toxic masculinity is, but I get the sense that it is more of a modern thing than a basic condition of human existence. But if you watch chimpanzees and you see the pointlessness of it all, you start to see the pointlessness of a lot of it within humans. It's a terrible drain on, I guess I would say, all of us. Yeah, for sure. So what I'm hearing is that in healthier cultures, whether it's an animal culture or another human culture, they have some mechanisms in place for keeping that toxic behavior perhaps in check. I think so. Yeah. Human culture, especially tribal culture, is not my specialty. When you know most of the people you live with, it's very hard to get away with cheating, for instance. Now there's a lot of cheating all over the place. People cheat and lie all over the place. You can get away with it when everybody is anonymous and you're anonymous. But if you live with a lot of people that you know and rely on, 
your incentive for doing that, especially because reciprocity is such an important thing, that the results of merely being ostracized are likely to be lethal if you're in a community like that. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think this largely because of what I've read from people who've spent time with a few really pretty traditional remaining cultures, that their interaction with each other is actually in many ways sets a much higher tone than the lives that we tend to live where we're, you know, just think of internet scammers or uh, how often you get these calls from people who are trying to scam you or trying to tell you that, you know, if you don't do this, all your money is going to come out of your bank account. Yeah, the predatory behavior. Yeah, that kind of predatory behavior, I think, is impossible in a small hunter-gathering group where, where everyone needs to rely on each other. And what would your incentive be to do something bad to somebody that you know like that? You reflect, at least I reflect a lot on all of that stuff, partly by watching what chimpanzees do. And, and again, like I say, you know, seeing how pointless that kind of obsessive, hierarchical, male-dominated society is. And you could say, I mean, obviously that is that thinking and that behavior translates into the same destructive violence being perpetrated against other species and plants and our natural systems on the earth as well. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I, I just read a story very recently in the New York Times about somebody who was going into a very traditional Maasai community in Kenya, one that I visited when I was in my 20s with a, with a friend and someone who lived there and had grown up there, we were all in our 20s. And they have, well, their term for it is libone in another culture that might be called a shaman. At any rate, they were going to go into the forest to look for some medicinal herbs. And the, the shamanistic person asked for permission from the forest to enter. If that's the kind of respect you have for something that supports you, you are not going to destroy it. But if you have no respect for anything around you, you will be a very, very destructive force on earth. And our culture is that. That's where we're certainly at at the moment. A little um, change in direction. You've also written about the lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic. What are the connections uh, between the pandemic and the way we abuse the natural world? And what must we do differently if we are to prevent ourselves from creating and being the victims of further pandemics? In the last few decades, we've had quite a few epidemic outbreaks that were new. You know, there was SARS, there's bird flu, there's swine flu, there's Ebola, Marburg, and there's COVID. All of the other ones I mentioned, with the possible exception of COVID, although most of the evidence shows that COVID is in this same category, that we got it from animals that we were harming, that we were overexploiting, that we were treating badly by killing them to eat them or mixing them up in these uh, really awful live markets and that sort of thing. So I think it's quite related to uh, an overall abusive relationship that we have with the rest of the living world that helps to 
prompt these new interactions with these newly evolving pathogens through other species that we are finding new ways to exploit or we're exploiting in, in really intensive ways. The way that we have industrial pig farming and industrial chicken farming now, that's not the way farms were for thousands of years, Yeah, but that's the way they are now. And so these are really evolutionary test tubes for viruses and bacteria that just can try all kinds of new little things and see what sticks. And sometimes what sticks is that a new species being us is totally vulnerable. We were very, very lucky that COVID killed only 3% or so of the people that it infects. And that's the one that became a pandemic because some of these other ones that I mentioned had much higher mortality rates, mm. 60 or 80%. If those got loose, in a pandemic kind of a way, you know, civilization would have just completely fallen apart. Yeah, we're toast. So what have we got to do here? Um, so we continue this industrialized farming of animals and these so-called wet markets in parts of Asia, et cetera, at our own peril. It seems like we need to shut a lot of that down and change the way that we are going about feeding ourselves at the very least. Yes, I think that's true. The other thing is that, you know, a lot of the intensification and all of the habitat destruction is due to the fact that there are as many of us as there are. And the world really can't bear it. Humans are very remarkable creatures, but we, we are too much of a good thing at this point. Carla, tough question for you. After all your ecological studies with the knowledge you have of climate change and biodiversity loss, is total collapse now inevitable? No, nothing is inevitable. There is that old saying where there's life, there's hope. That happens to be very true. There were things that looked inevitable when I was young about some of my favorite animals that appeared to be doomed to extinction like peregrine falcons, ospreys, bald eagles, most of the great whales, it appeared that nothing would prevent their extinction. And that's how many people spoke and wrote. But a few people, and often very few people, would not take that lying down and were determined to do everything they could to fight those trends. They won those fights. And we have really remarkable recoveries of those species. You know, where people give nature and living things a chance, it recovers. That's what it usually does. We're on some very devastating trajectories, but there's nothing inevitable about the outcome. We choose every day, really, whether to maintain those trajectories or to alter them. Well, and especially around habitat, right? And habitat loss, because even if you have the gumption and the know-how and the good fortune to save a species, that species needs to live somewhere. 
Well, that's how that's how you save them. You you can't save a species if there's no place for it to live, and that's why they go extinct. They almost never go extinct just because we kill too many of them. They usually go extinct because we eliminate or toxify all of their habitat. And there are exceptions. You know, with whales, it was that we were killing all of them. But with the birds I mentioned, it was because we were poisoning the whole habitat. And with the apes and uh, you know giraffes and lions and a lot of the big animals that everybody loves, their problem is they're losing their foothold in their living spaces. They just don't have places to live anymore. And that's what's shrinking their populations. Well, and of course, they're being hunted as well on top of that. They're being hunted as well on top of that. But really, what the main factor is and what will prevent their ability to recover is they just don't have any place to live. That's the main factor. They can come back from hunting. They can't come back from a farm or a city that replaces where they lived. Some silver linings for us, Cal. Do you see some animal species right now that you can specifically point to that are coming back or that are adapting quickly enough to survive in a time of climate change? Well, there's some of all of that, and, th- and there's some that are not. You know, here in the U.S. where I live, we have, uh, let's say, coyotes, for instance, that are showing unbelievable adaptability, not only in the face of extreme change, but in the face of extreme persecution. They just can take and avoid and slip slide everything that that people throw at them. Yeah, They're really amazing. The birds that I mentioned, peregrine, falcons, ospreys, bald eagles, they are very abundant now. They've reoccupied essentially all of the habitat that is available to them that they had disappeared from because the pesticides that were killing them have been banned and killing them directly has been prohibited. Now it's very common to see whales. Even at the beach, it's very common to see whales in the summertime where I live. This is an unheard of thing. I never thought that We would just see whales commonly while we're walking our dogs along the beach. And many of the fish that were very depleted are recovering. All of that has to do with the fact that people changed the course of their actions and implemented restraints and protections. So you see the animal populations responding very directly to whether they're overexploited or persecuted or protected. It makes a huge difference. I'm really interested in hearing about some encounters that you've personally had with individuals or groups of animals. Can you tell us about perhaps the most moving encounter or observation you've experienced in the wild? No, because there are so many of them. (laughs) You're a lucky man. The most moving encounters I've had were the several weeks I spent watching elephants with some of the great elephant researchers of the world. I just started to see these extremely remarkable, very devoted creatures to whom family is everything and their deep bonds with each other mean everything to them, who are very, very peaceful because they are herbivores. They're just, you know, grazing and browsing along. The main thing that they care about 
other than food and water, is to be with their family and to have their family be with other elephant families. Um, and they know exactly who they are. These relationships last for decades. They have different personalities. And that's the part you get from watching them with people who've watched them for decades, that even the, the families have different personalities because the leaders of the families do things differently. Hmm. Some are really relaxed. Some are a little high strung. Some don't like to travel much. Some like to wander huge distances. They all have personalities and they're all different. And their emotional lives are a huge part of who they are. I started to think like, how am I ever going to live without elephants again? Come back to a place where there are no elephants. It seemed like they were more like the kind of people we should be most of the time. And that, that was incredibly moving and incredibly touching. You know, and you see these little babies running around exploring things and the adults watching carefully, letting them do what they want to do, but making sure they're okay. And if something is not okay, they all rush over and disentangle a baby who's maybe tripped up in the vines or something like that. You know, it's really uh, just totally remarkable. And of course, they live in beauty all the time. Like that, that Navajo phrase about walking in beauty. We don't always construct our world to be beautiful. Often, I think we don't really think about that too much. In fact, we often say, oh, that's just aesthetics. Yeah, we do say that. Uh, whereas there have been other people, and there are certainly many other animals that live always in beauty, but many people have designed things to be beautiful because really who would want to live in an unbeautiful place but we've built a lot of really unbeautiful places why do we do it that way it has to do with our values and and the stories that we tell ourselves about what is important yeah the first place that comes to mind when you say that is the good old american strip mall and they're everywhere like where i live over here on the west coast that's the whole thing, that's, that's my town. There is no, there's no center, there's no place, there's no gathering place for human beings. It's just... Right. And that is a lot of America. I, I first drove across the country when I was in my 20s. I mean, that's more than 40 years ago now. Some of the long drives that I've taken much more recently, it, it's really appalling to see no towns and yeah. uh, just shopping mall after shopping mall after shopping mall. And People somehow accepting that as the outcome or having or having the strategy being to basically depopulate a town and just move all of the business into a shopping mall. Yeah, in my opinion, people should resist that and just not do it. I try to visit small little family run shops as much as I can and avoid the malls, but my options are also limited yeah. because of where I live. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good thing for all of us to practice for sure. It's certainly been very intentional out here to move in those strip malls, as you said, and intentionally keep out the mom and pop businesses that bring a heart and soul to a to a community. And it's, yes, yeah, very sad. A heart and soul and dignity as well. Yeah. These low wage workers in dead end jobs who are in their 50s and should be, you know, they should own some little mom and pop business somewhere. and. 
be proud of their lives and provide a job for young people who are coming up too. That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And provide products and things that we need for our daily lives and instead of just stuff that we attain for some sense of weird consumption, right? Yeah. What's the most surprising encounter that you might've had or a surprising thing that you've learned from all these decades of observations of other sentient species? Oh, I think that's a hard question to answer. I feel like I've learned everything I know about life by watching how nature works. But let's just try one thing that I think is really quite amazing. Charles Darwin is well known for having what is called his theory of evolution by natural selection. And that is about the fact that not everyone can survive and who gets to survive and who doesn't get to survive has to do with how well they fit the conditions. So if seeds are harder because the climate is drying out, you probably will survive if you have a slightly bigger, slightly stronger beak if you're a finch, and you may not be able to get enough food to either live or to raise young ones if you have an average or a less than averagely strong beak, if the climate around you is, you know, making seeds bigger and harder, right? So that's how it works. The environment is a filter that determines what's needed and what's needed determines who gets a shot at staying alive as uh, conditions slowly change based on the variability of individuals. But Darwin himself realized that that doesn't account for everything, that that does not answer the question of why do peacocks have those kinds of tails and why are some birds red, some birds orange, some birds yellow. What does that have to do with fitting into the environment when when the females of those birds are camouflaged? You would think that it would be a tremendous disadvantage to look the way they look and to have a tail like a peacock or colors like a hummingbird. So he understood that his own theory of natural selection did not account for everything. And there was this whole other big area, which is basically living beauty, that must be happening because of a totally different mechanism. He puzzled through it and decided that he thought that that mechanism was that during courtship, males are usually the ones who are vying to be chosen and females usually do the choosing. And a lot of what the females choose are these kind of outlandish things because they seem to have a simply arbitrary taste for beauty. They have an arbitrary aesthetic for things that look beautiful. And once that gets set up, then you have to be a little more beautiful if you're a male (laughs) to be chosen. So, And this is called runaway selection. But the thing is, and this is, I think, really the astonishing part, these two things are exceptionally different. Most people have really never heard of sexual selection, and even a lot of biologists who have heard about it, they think, oh, it's just a form of natural selection. But natural selection is not selection. It's filtering. 
nobody is choosing or picking or selecting anything at all. It's just a filter. Mm. You know, it's like if you run, if you run gravel through, uh, through filters of different sizes, the gravel that you get and you retain is just going to be dependent on a filter size. That's it. But in sexual selection, life is choosing beauty. Life mm. is choosing to be more beautiful. That is unbelievable when you think about it. And if anything is the most surprising thing about life, that's probably it, that most of the beauty that we see around us that is what you would call living ornamentation, stuff that doesn't look very practical, but is just really beautiful and strikes us as beautiful, even though we're not the birds or the fish with the bright colors or the pollinating insects that are choosing flowers that are vying for attraction with the way that they look and the way that they smell, that looks beautiful and smells beautiful to us. To me, there's something really mysterious about that, that we seem to have a universalized sense of what is beautiful and that living things have made that beauty by their choices. Wow. I, that, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Just wow. <laughs> I heard the thunder clap. You got some appreciation from the thunder too. Yeah, I think I got, uh, I think that somebody was listening. To <laughs> yeah. They're like, yes, that's it. <laughs> wow. I'm going to be thinking about that for some time. Thank you. That's just amazing. It's very profound. It's, it's about as profound as it gets. Birds of paradise is what came to mind as you were talking about that. I mean, Birds of Paradise are a fantastic example of that. Just incredible. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. So I wanted to go back and ask you about the time that you spent fighting on uh, behalf of oceans to ban drift nets. Did you succeed with that endeavor? Yes, I came in late in that international campaign. The idea was to get the UN to ban drift nets and member countries to agree. Drift nets were tens of miles long. Many of them were 30 miles long. There were about 1,000 boats using them. That is 30,000 miles of netting in the ocean every night. They caught anything that swam into them. They caught a lot of seabirds that dive. They were an absolute nightmare. I found out that they had started moving into the Atlantic Ocean. Up until that time, they were only known to be in the Pacific. And so I got into the fray in a huge way right away at that time, because there was already a lot of momentum going. The fact that they were moving into a new ocean was kind of the last straw, it lit a fire, and uh, the United Nations banned those nets. That was not the end of all the troubles in the ocean and all the overfishing. But for the most part, they are illegal and they are no longer 
used at that scale. So that was a really good thing. And I was part of that very early in my attempts to really get involved in ocean conservation, not just studying seabirds. So um, that was very affirming to me at the time. And it was, it was a wonderful thing to be involved in. Cal, you just won a Legacy Award from the American Conservation Group Defenders of Wildlife. Congratulations. Thank you. On award night, I heard you talk about the moral imperative to act, the link between caring for the earth and our humanity. Would you like to elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think a lot of the struggles that we have are entirely moral issues. They're not just practical issues, because if you only ask yourself, you know, what is practical, you would say, well, let's just use whatever energy is cheapest. The cheapest energy is slaves. We know that that is immoral, and that's the reason not to do that. And most of the things that we are kind of struggling with now, the big, big issues, let's say the extinction crisis. Why do we need to care about other animals? Not because we need those animals, but because those animals need us. If you ask, you know, do we need this bird? Do we need elephants? Do we need some whale out there? The answer is going to be no, we don't need it. Why do I say that? Because the experiment is done. 4,000 years ago, when people were building pyramids in Egypt, there were woolly mammoths in North America. There are no elephants in North America. Does that resulted in the collapse of civilization in the Americas? No. People don't need elephants, but elephants need people. They will not exist unless people care enough to make sure that they do. And many of the things that are really important, like stabilizing the climate, we will not see the effect of the right policies in probably in any of our lifetimes, but we will have done the right thing for all of the people that are not born, who have nothing to say about it right now, and all of the other creatures that live on this only known living planet. That is a matter of enormous moral imperative. There's simply nothing more important than that. Thank you, beautifully said. So what's next for you? Do you have some more books in you? Oh, God. Well, I would have to live to be about <laughs> 1,800 years old to write all of the books on my list of possible books to write. But um, well, That would be a work- great thing. That would be a great <laughs> thing. <laughs> I am working on a book right now that has to do with watching a pair of owls that are nesting in my backyard and um, the fact that all of my travel was canceled last year because of COVID. And that coincided very happily and very accidentally with the fact that a little orphaned owl that was raised by hand decided to stick around when she was released and got a wild mate. And they have nested now for two years in a row in a nest box that I put up. I was able to watch them for a couple of hours at dawn and a couple of hours at dusk every day because I wasn't going anywhere. So I was watching these owls for four or five hours a day. That's a lot. Sure is. What a great opportunity the pandemic gave you. Yes. The story is kind of built around them, but the deeper meaning of the book, the thing the book is really going to be about, if I can pull this off, because it's not that simple, is to explore some of these things I was talking about 
that the ways that people have seen the world over the last few thousand years, the indigenous views, the Eastern views, and the Western views differ really enormously and the implications, the roots of it and the implications of it. And that's what I want to weave into the book. Right now, the way it stands is I have a really sweet book that's all written about these owls, but it's only about the owls. And I have more than a book length amount of notes that I've taken from a lot of other reading I've done about these other topics, about human views of nature. And I have to um, probably reduce the latter by about 80% in volume and then figure out how to gracefully braid those things together. So I have my work cut out for me. Oh, that's fantastic. And I have a feeling that that totemic uh, owl that's on your T-shirt there and that animal is going to bring you all the wisdom you need (laughs) to be able to do that. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Right. Another quick question for you, and then we can wrap this. Um, How can people get involved in the fight to address the mess we've made and the damage we're doing to the Earth's beautiful inhabitants. And perhaps you could use this as an opportunity to talk about the Safina Center that you founded in 2003. The Safina Center is my uh, not-for-profit group. And what we're trying to do is fuse information and emotional connection. We're not just trying to teach you things or inform you because there's a lot of information all over the place, but we are trying to reach people and touch them emotionally about what is at stake and make people feel inspired to do what they can in their lives. Now, that gets to your question, what can they do? It depends who you are and what stage of life you're at. If you're a student, you might be trying to figure out what you want to do for a living and maybe working in a mission-oriented group or a profession is what you decide to do. Use your working life toward those ends. But if you're a billionaire, Maybe you want to start a foundation or write checks to groups that are doing work that you like. If you're a regular person in the middle of all of that, you make decisions every single day about what you will eat, what you will buy, who you will vote for is really important, as we're seeing, what kind of car you're going to drive, how many children you want to have. These things have enormous consequences. And then there are lots of groups that are trying to do things that are good. People should look at groups around them and see who and what they have time to either support by writing a check or get involved with their time as a volunteer or maybe even a career change. So there's plenty. Yeah. And all those little things can certainly make a difference and some of them aren't so little. You know, it's amazing. Like you said at the beginning, what people have been able to do in saving a whole species. I keep reading. A, A lot of people are looking to change careers. COVID made them decide that they don't want to just spend their life in a dead-end job or a low-paying dead-end job. You could go to a low-paying, meaningful job (laughs) or actually make a decent living in a mission-oriented organization. That is quite possible. That's great. Well, the mission of the Safina Center and the mission of our little podcast here at Sentient Planet are in perfect alignment with wanting to bring inspiring information to people and hopefully inspire them to actually take some action in the world and um, not to give up and wring their hands in despair. There is plenty of things um, to do and we all need to get to work. So it's been a real honor and a pleasure to talk with you, Carl. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, Susan, I feel exactly the same. and I'm very honored that you reached out to me. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>